a lot of you know this. I was um, in New Orleans for, yeah, you got it, you got it. Uh, I was in New Orleans for the past uh, week, and you like this even more, but we was in the Superdome all week, too. And uh, um, basically, this is what was going on. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Every three years, they have this gigantic national youth gathering. And it was 25,000 high school students converging on the city of New Orleans for about five days. Okay, try to wrap your mind around that. 25,000 high school students without parents in the city of New Orleans for five days. Days, many of the hotels right there in French Quarter. And um, what I was doing is I was serving on the crisis intervention team. Because when you have 25,000 high school students in a city like New Orleans without their parents, there is certain to be crisis. And um, I got to spend about a week walking around with a little radio earpiece in, getting dispatched all over Kingdom Come to this person who's having a meltdown, to that person who's lost, to that person, I'm not even going to go into it. I will say this. Utterly incredible testimony to these Christian kids that when you think of the crisis that there could be when 25,000 converge in a city like New Orleans without their parents, not one thing criminal, not one thing immoral, not one thing coming on the earpiece. Instead, it's people coming face to face with Jesus and, and having crises of conscience. God, what are you calling me to do with my life? I don't know how to handle what I'm going through in my life. And it was just, guys, I can't, I, I wish I could bring you there to experience it firsthand and, and just taste what it's like to see that. My family and I, we got back late Wednesday. If I'm still walking around like a zombie, it's because for 23 hours a day we're answering calls. Um, and I'm still kind of kicking out of it. But I want to share one experience in particular with you. A large portion of the event takes place in the convention center. And, and I mean, uh, it, it puts McCormick Place to shame. I mean, it's like a mile long, I kid you not, packed with interest centers and speakers and experiential events. And I happened to be walking through the convention floor and, and heard this guy talking and, and, and thinking about this Refugee Sunday that we're coming up to today and start hearing words dropped like, Syria and refugee, what is this? I look, and, and there's a banner up on this interest center, and it says Lutheran Refugee and Immigration Services. And I step over, and there's this, this 20-something guy, well-groomed, well-dressed. His name is Ahmet. And there's about 15 people gathered there, and, and, and I just start picking up his story. See, apparently Ahmet was looking to immigrate. And the authorities saw that he had a few too many international calls on his cell phone. And the police showed up at his door one night while he was asleep. And they took him out. And they interred him. They prisoned him. He was telling the story of what it was like living in those conditions of not knowing what was going to happen next. Every night at 10 p.m., being taken out of his cell and interrogated until 6 a.m. every night. He said he went 15 days without sleep, to which he then immediately said, but people say that you can't go 15 days without sleep and live. It's, it's humanly impossible, to which he could just say, look, I don't know what to tell you. 
For 15 days, I didn't get to sleep. There, there's periods of times that are blacked out that I don't even remember. For eight hours every night, breaking his will, keeping him awake, interrogating and torturing Trying to root out, who is this guy? Why so many international calls? As he's just trying to get out of political conflict. He shared a story about his time in there. And it was one of the times that he was in a, what would we call it here in the States? In the cell block, where others were gathered as well. And there was a, a woman there with her five-year-old son in the prison. They were lamenting the things that they missed, the things, trying to hold on with hope, you know? The things that they were going to experience and do, the things that they were yearning for when they would get out again. And I met happened to mention that just almost in passing. You know what I can't wait? I can't wait to see a bird again. To which the five-year-old listening to the conversation says this, what's a bird? Thought he was being sarcastic at first or maybe didn't know the word so he played along a little bit. He's like, you know what a bird is? A bird. It's, it's the animal that flies in the sky, to which the kid answers. What's a sky? He'd never seen the outside. He'd never seen a bird. He'd never seen the sky. Apparently what happened is that his mom was raped in prison, whether by a guard or someone else interred with them, gave birth to her son in prison, in a room with no windows, in a place where there were no outside privileges and had never in his life seen a bird or the sky. Now, it was amazing to me hearing his story and going into some of the details of what he had to suffer and how it broke his will. But when Amet choked up that day at that talk is when he said this, I've been here for five years now. That boy would be 10 years old now. And I still don't know if he's in there. And I still don't know if he has ever seen a bird or a sky. Can you even wrap your mind around that? Guys, there is a global crisis going on. What's new? But it doesn't make it any less severe. All of us at least mildly have heard of the political turmoil happening in Syria and other areas of the Middle East and people with their families trying to flee. It's created a global refugee crisis. And let me just unpack a little bit of what life is like for a refugee. Imagine what it's like to live in your homeland under the constant fear that you can be arrested, attacked, or persecuted because of your religious beliefs, your political beliefs, or just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Imagine the questions going through your mind. Do we go for it? And what if we get caught? Do we have the resources? And when we get there, wherever there might be, how do we start again? Imagine making that decision to go for it, to work the system or to flee or to find a border. Many of these refugees live under trees or under door posts. It was amazing walking the streets of New Orleans and seeing the amount of homeless people who camped under doorways, refugees with their families, living outside, maybe eventually finding a tarp or a tent and gathering together in little makeshift tent villages. Food is scarce, clean water is scarce, sanitation is a dream. 
Your kids don't go to school. Employment opportunities for you are nil. And then along with it, all the oppression and exploitation that comes from, can we just say, unscrupulous people who take advantage of those in harm's way. Or maybe you do actually find someone who promises to give you an inkling of hope, but you find out you're then enmeshed in something like the sex trade or forced labor or any other number of rackets that exist. And it's not for a day, it's not for a week, it's not for months. For some, it goes on for years. Imagine having a newborn, a toddler. It's hard enough in American conditions, isn't it? Imagine living like that with them watching them grow up from a young girl or boy to a teenager in conditions like that. This is what millions are facing today. I put together a little quiz for you. Just some stats about what's going on globally with the refugee issues. Just, just kind of score yourself, all right? Um, see how you do. A few questions here. Question one, how many refugees are in the world today? Got a feel? Here you go, 20 million. State Department says there's about 20 million refugees living in the world today. How about this? What is the largest refugee population in the United States? It's a big hot topic for us here, isn't it? Especially in a political year. When we look at who has immigrated here or fled and found refuge here, who, who's topping the list? Iraqis in your mind, Vietnamese, former Soviet Union, Syrians? It's not what most people think. It's the former Soviet Union. The refugee crisis is nothing new to the United States. Many of you remember a generation ago when the enemy was further east than the Middle East. And people living there under oppressive circumstances trying to flee as well. 380,000 refugees from the former Soviet Union, followed by Vietnam, followed by Bosnia, and if you're curious, Iraq is fourth. But let's frame it this way. From which countries do the largest refugee populations come? Not to the U.S. per se, but globally. From which countries are most refugees fleeing from? Take a minute and digest it. What do you got? What do you think? Here it is. Number two. The largest populations of refugees today are coming out of Palestine first at about 5 million, followed by Syria at just under 5 million, followed by Afghanistan at 2.8. Six. And from what you hear in the news, can you understand why? How many have fled Syria? If you were paying attention earlier, you should know the answer to this one. Let's see how you do. You know how many? It's kind of a trick question. It depends how you do your math. 4.84 million have fled Syria out of country. But that does not include about another 6.5 million who have been displaced within their own country. Because the technical definition of a refugee is someone who has fled out of their national border into another. But it does not include people groups who have been displaced because of, well, a civil war? Because of Islamic State? Because of all the things going on internally and have had to flee often under the same circumstances as a refugee to other parts of their country. Add that on, and you're looking at about 11 and a half million. Now, how many do you think are women and children? 
40, 55, 80, 90. Who's going 90? Yeah, you're wrong. It's 80. All right. But it's a good guess. 80% are women and children. What's the average amount of time a refugee lives in a refugee camp? Do you understand what's meant by refugee camp? This isn't talking about someone who's homeless on the street or has find, found refuge in an abandoned building or crammed into an apartment with others or is living in their garage or their shed, but those who have lived and, and, and formed these makeshift villages that have popped up on the landscape, these, these, these pole and tarp kind of structures that, that stretch on for what seems to be miles. Average length of time for someone living who is a refugee, average length, 17 years. I cannot even wrap my mind around this. And in case you think I'm playing with the numbers, guys, this is coming from State Department, corroborated by UN, corroborated by CIA. How about this? What country hosts the most refugees? Turkey. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit more later on this morning. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Because I'll be honest, it's something that I have struggled with my whole life. You see the plight, you see the need, you hear the stories, and it might be this or any number of other issues from the whole Ethiopian famine back in the 80s when we saw all the pictures on the screen, to the AIDS crisis of the 90s or 2000s, to just even walking down the streets of New Orleans a week ago, looking at the homeless guy laying in the gutter, going, I know I'm called to love him, but how do I show love in a way that matters, that makes a difference, that's smart in situations like these? You know, what I'd like to do a little bit this morning is just delve into what the Bible has to say about refugees. Because surprisingly, it says far more than what most people think. Now, I'm just going to give you a quick outline of major ideas up here. But allow me, as we look at this, to just bombard you with Scripture and let God, through this, impact you with words or phrases. Let, 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 let ideas rise to the surface as you hear this array of things the Bible has to say. Now, let's start here. Forgive me for my uh, bookmarks. They're a little difficult to turn. What does the Bible have to say? Well, let's kind of start with the obvious, but one that is so foundational. Love them. What's the two greatest commandments, God says, that Jesus proclaimed? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And how do you know if you're doing that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? A teacher of the law once asked. And it's fascinating how Jesus responded to this. Have you ever heard the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's about this Jewish man, upstanding, middle class. He's traveling on his way and he gets waylaid by, by robbers on the road. He's beaten and left for dead. His own countrymen pass him by. Not only his own countrymen, rulers, governors, pastors and priests. The people with the most responsibility to care for those in need, and they turn a blind eye. Then a Samaritan walks by. Okay, big deal, a Samaritan. A Samaritan walks by. 
a foreigner, an outcast, one who is feared and deemed as a threat, one who isn't one of us, one who is suspect through and through. This is Samaritans in Jesus' day. And he walks by and he sees the man and he puts him on his own donkey. He binds his wounds. He takes him to a hotel. He pays the innkeeper and says, feed this man and shelter this man. And if this money isn't enough, when I come back, we'll square accounts. And Jesus asks him, who is that man's neighbor? Can I ask you the same? And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Luke chapter 10, you can read it for yourself. Our neighbors are not just those who live next door. And the Bible's clear. Our neighbors are not those who just look like us and think like us and believe like us. It's the Samaritans. It's the foreigners. It's the refugees. And the Bible says, love them. Love them as yourself. Listen to this from Leviticus chapter 19. When a foreigner or refugee lives with you in your land... Do not mistreat him. The foreigner living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourselves. For you also were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And elsewhere, he writes this. It says, Do not oppress the foreigner because you yourselves know how it feels. Because you were foreigners in Egypt. I don't know how it feels. But you know, I only have to go back three to four generations to my grandfather's side, who my great-grandfather hopping on a boat in the middle of the night to flee Italy in organized crime there. To my grandmother's side, German immigrants in Russia then having to flee Russia. And I go four generations back. My own family were refugees. Unless you're Native American, your story is probably the same. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't forget what it's like or what it was like for those who brought you here to be in their shoes. Why? Why love them this way? Because God loves refugees. There's this odd thing in the Bible and I can't really make sense of it. God loves everyone the same, doesn't he? Yeah, I agree with that. But he seems to love the poor and the refugee more. Read through the scriptures and God has a special heart and a special place and an overabundance of care that seems to go beyond others for the poor and the widow and the fatherless and the refugee. I love this one passage that comes out of Deuteronomy. God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners as well, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Are we seeing a theme? Why do we love him? Because God loves them, and we can't claim to love God if we don't love the people and the things that God loves. Oh, is that easy for me to forget? It's easy for me to forget But what the scriptures do is constantly call us back to remember the basic foundational things of the heart of God. What else does the scripture say? Well, help. I love what James says. If your brother's in need and you see him and you go, I wish you well, and then go on your way, what good does that do your brother? Faith without action is dead. 
A little bit of what the scriptures have to say here from, from Matthew. The king said to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me and I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous answered, Lord, when did we see you like this? And he replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you do for me. It's so convicting to me. But the way that we treat those in need is a direct reflection on the way that we treat Jesus. And God calls for us to get in the game. God calls for us to help. And for God, this is a primary issue. It's easy, isn't it, in Christian doctrine and Christian teaching and in our own spirituality to get lost in the fog of so many temptations and so many struggles and so many avenues of spiritual growth and so many things of importance. It's easy, isn't it, to start kind of internally rating them. These are the things that really matter to God. These are the things, eh, you know, go on the sly a little bit. And maybe we're even right in doing that. But even if we are, for God, this is a primary issue I think of some of these passages. The prophet Ezekiel calling out the people of God while they are in exile, while they are refugees. And he makes a comparison. If I say the words Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think? Remember these cities back in Genesis? God comes down and he rains fire and brimstone upon them. And if I was to ask you why, What do you think? You go back thinking, don't you, to the rampant sexual immorality that took hold of the city. And yet look at what Ezekiel has to say. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. There seems to be a link in the human heart, and I don't fully understand why. That the sins of this world that are so apparent to us, that, that, that call for God save us, you, you know what I mean? They are often bred by comfort, security, being overfed, which leads to arrogance and unconcern. They did not help the poor and the needy, or what Malachi has to say later. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive refugees of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And let's not forget this. Jesus was a refugee when Jesus was about two years old. The political climate changed, and he became hunted for his age. King Herod put out the decree to slaughter all babies in the town of Bethlehem. And what happens according to the Christmas story? An angel comes in the night to Joseph and says, flee your home. Get out. Get over the border. And they flee to Egypt, where they live as refugees. When Herod finally dies, 
They come back, but an angel comes again and says, don't go back to Bethlehem. His son is reigning. It ain't safe. Now you're a displaced people group. Live up in Nazareth. Good luck. Start anew. The one we follow is a refugee. And let's not forget, it's deep in our blood. Abraham was a wandering Aramean. Moses lived as a refugee in the desert. The people of Israel lived as refugees for 40 years, fleeing Egypt and refugees coming into Canaan and then again through exile and oppression and everything else. And let's not forget what Jesus even tells to his disciples. Go from town to town when they persecute you, flee to another. Take nothing with you but the cloak on your back and the sandals on your feet. Our entire worldview as Christians is immersed and the lifestyle of refugees. Now, there's an old joke. Following Jesus doesn't mean you have to put on a robe and sandals, right? It doesn't mean you have to mimic and duplicate everything he did. But shouldn't it at least inform our thinking? 